From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She became Denver's longest-serving news anchor, but when Anne Trujillo moved to mostly white Littleton as a Hispanic kid, people sometimes underestimated her. My high school counselor told me I needed to go to trade school, that I wasn't college material. They were helping other students figure out their career paths, and I knew I wasn't different. Today, tools she honed in journalism that can benefit the rest of us. Then, an experiment in Grand Junction to reduce homelessness. They're calling it a resource pavilion. It'll be a day shelter. It'll have things like showers, bathrooms, hand-washing stations, laundry. And job services, school connections. Our Western Slope producer Tom Hess reports. Plus, what we know about a spike in respiratory issues in dogs. In this season of gratitude, we are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You know you've led a meaningful career when, upon your retirement, the state declares a day in your honor. November 16th will forever be Anne Trujillo Day in Colorado in honor of the longest-serving evening news anchor here. Since she signed off from Denver 7 earlier this month, there have been a slew of retrospectives in the press For us, though, Trujillo agreed to answer just about 10 questions about her inner life and the tools she has honed personally and professionally that we all might benefit from. And and thanks for being with us. My pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Television is designed to look good. The sets, the lighting, the makeup. Uh, it's why I'm particularly interested in talking to you about the blemishes, the fi- figure, <laughs> figurative blemishes. So many people I know who are at the top of their game deal with imposter syndrome, this idea that they don't belong, and they're somehow faking their way through. As a journalist who contends with that myself, um, I'm eager to know if you did. Does that resonate? You know, it used to be something that I would think about. And I read an article fairly recently that said, get rid of that phrase, imposter syndrome. And I think that what we need to really think about is that the world needs to make space for people who are maybe not someone who looks like those who have been the decision makers or those who have been in charge all of these years. It is time that the world starts to adapt and change and know that There are people with differences of opinions or looks or socioeconomic level, whatever those differences are, Mm. that the world needs to start changing. And so I had decided not all that long ago that I was going to to not even consider imposter syndrome because I think growing up, I felt like I didn't wholly fit in, in in a lot of scenarios. And it took me a while. I think, you know, it's just maturity over the years to kind of go... No, somebody else needs to change. I'm moving into this space. Oh. What was his space early on 
You grew up in Littleton, by mm-hmm. the way. Went to Littleton High School. Sure. What was the space early on where you contended with that feeling? Well, growing up in Littleton, we were one of very few families of color. We moved here when I was middle of my sixth grade year. And I remember having a conversation with my parents at the time. We had moved here and they said, we can move to Denver and be around people who who we're comfortable with, who we look like, who, you know, we speak Spanglish, you know, who we we know. And at that time, Denver was going through a tough time with schools, mm. the school district. And so my dad moved us here because he went to work for Martin Marietta. And, and my parents said, yes. And my parents said, or we can move to Littleton where we know the schools are good. We know that I will be closer to my job. And we had a family meeting and we decided we're going to try Littleton. And so that was probably my first taste of, huh, we look a little different in this community. And remind me where you had moved from. At that time, we had moved from the Los Angeles area. Mm -hmm. I'm originally from Santa Fe, New Mexico. And my parents were very young parents. They were married at 18, had us at 19, 20, and 21. And at that time, Santa Fe was a very small, nothing town. There was nothing for people there. So they left. And I spent most of my elementary schools in the Los Angeles area. Around other kids of color. Very diverse. Uh Yes, yes, yes. And so what is an instance that stands out in your mind from that time in Littleton as you were adjusting? Um, Or to to, to, uh, make reference to what you said earlier, as people were adjusting to you. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. I vividly remember walking down the street in my neighborhood one time and someone calling me the N-word. And I remember also kind of laughing about it, thinking, oh, they don't know me. They don't know anything about me. My high school counselor told me I needed to go to a trade school, that I wasn't college material. And I remember she was consulting with other students. They were helping other students figure out their career paths. And I wasn't one of those. And I knew I wasn't any different. And so when... A counselor says, I think trade school's the right path. And by the way, absolutely nothing wrong with trade (laughs) school. Of course, of course. But for a counselor to be shutting down opportunities and and not having the conversation, that's a problem. You had the self-awareness to say- I didn't have a choice. My parents said, you are going to college. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't have the opportunity to go and they said to us, you are going to college. Did you know you wanted to be a journalist by that point? No. Okay. I will say that my very first job was at the Littleton Independent, the newspaper in which is on Main Street in downtown Littleton. And I was an errand girl. I didn't do much of anything related to journalism, but that was certainly my first introduction to journalism. Yeah, and I think when you're young, even just proximity yeah. to newsrooms yeah. is exciting. And then you kind of look over and go, I want to be a part of that. Exactly. Uh-huh. Early in a career, mistakes are inevitable. Sometimes they're embarrassing. <laughs> I could share one if it would make you feel more comfortable, but I don't have to. Would you talk about a mistake you made at the start of your career, journalism career, and what you learned from it? I can't even tell you how many mistakes I made. It just... I don't need a count. I just want one example. One example. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You know, my very first TV job, I was in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, and I didn't know how to do anything. They hired me, and I went to this newsroom, and the mistakes were many. 
And I still make mistakes. I mean, even, you know, I could probably tell you a few from last week because it's just always a work in progress. I'm sorry, I'm not giving you a good example, oh, but it's no, just but there's this... always something. And I think that's part of being a journalist. You always look back and say, I should have said this. I should have changed that word. I mm. should have changed that sentence. What was I thinking at that time? Because it's always shoulda, woulda, coulda, right? Oh, yes, this notion that it's always a work in progress. It's comforting to hear that from Colorado's longest serving anchor. And I suppose if you lost that feeling, that would be a red flag. Like, maybe I should get out of this business. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. No, I, I think that the reality about working in news is, yes, you have to meet deadlines. And it's not always perfect. But we try. We try. And yes, we make mistakes. And I think a lot of us walk out of there beating ourselves up, saying, why did I say that? Or why did I choose that word? I wish I had two more minutes to be able to change that. I would have said it a little bit differently. You just do that in your profession. So yes, if I had lost that, I think that would have been a tragedy. Yeah. And when members of the audience write in, <laughs> you know, they can be cruel, but sometimes they're never as cruel as the internal voice mm. that beats you up after the mischosen word. I think the hardest time I would ever have is just going home and not turning my brain off because of the woulda, coulda, shoulda. Mm. What have you learned about constructive criticism? And maybe you could share both taking it and giving mm. it. I think the taking part is who you're listening to. I have learned it needs to be from someone who I respect and I will listen and I will take it. And if it's someone who, not that I want to disregard anyone's opinions, mm -hmm. but there are people out there who don't fully understand what it takes to do our jobs, right? That I will take it with a grain of salt and say, thank you. I appreciate you writing in. Thank you so much. Consider the source. Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. Okay. I could do more of that. What about giving constructive criticism? Because there are any number of I'm sure younger journalists who have come up in the Seven Newsroom. I have a lot of fellow journalists, although all of them are, you know, easily half my age and younger. <laughs> <laughs> and I love when they have said to me, especially recently, I have your voice in my head. What would Anne do? Hmm. And so that made me feel good, Ryan, that I was leaving and, and knowing that I had an impact and hopefully not in an offensive way, but I just knew that there were times when I needed to have my voice to be the loudest one in the room, which is not really my style typically, but there are times when you just need to speak up when you're the veteran in a newsroom. How do you do that? How do you approach that? It was one of my last newscasts, and I even said to one of our producers, is this the best story we have tonight to lead our newscast? Have you thought about whatever, fill in the blanks. And that's typically one of the phrases that I would use. I also I like that it's a question, right? It's not, mm -hmm. this is a crappy lead. <laughs> what are you doing? How right. nice that it's an inquiry. Right. Because I think in a, in a newsroom, you have to have those conversations. You can't just let it be one person's decision. It has to be all of us collectively thinking about 
what it is that is most important to our viewers. You had to interview, corral, maybe, some very powerful people over the years. Were there techniques you used to psych yourself up? Well, you and I did a debate together. Yeah, I remember that. (laughs) And those are always the most stressful situations ever for me. You know, and it's so funny. I was so nervous. I was nervous, right? I did not (laughs) sense that. I looked to you and I thought, I'm just going to be like this stalwart. So were there things you were telling yourself like before air or as we were honing questions? Is there self-talk that was helpful before an event like that? I think when you have a, a group of journalists in the same room, which we did on a regular basis before that debate, and you list all of the possibilities of topics and questions, and you remember we reworked those questions 50 times. And we changed one word here and there. And it does come down to one word sometimes. So it's just what is most important to the people of Colorado? What do they really care about? That was always what was in my head. Well, I also hear you saying an antidote to maybe the fear is preparation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Knowing your stuff. And never feeling like you know enough. How much of your identity is tied up in being on television and is not being on TV going to require some adjustment? Oh, I have loved my job. I have always felt like I've been very grounded about who I am and my presence on television is not everything to me. I I, Honestly, I look forward to not wearing fake eyelashes anymore, not wearing makeup all the time. If you see me at Costco, I will go and I will be in my jeans and tennis shoes and a t-shirt and no makeup. I'm I'm good with being Anne Trujillo, mm-hmm. not on television. No, Do you think I, that was always true or did you have to develop that? I guess I'm just asking, not to turn this into a therapy session where you're the therapist, <laughs> but... um. There's something fulfilling about being recognized and having your work recognized. And, you know, it can be addictive. You know, I I think it's lovely that people have come to know me and trusted me. I feel so honored by that. I know there are a lot of people out there who relish being on television. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm one of those. And at the same time, I'm not going to lie, I did... You know, and I, I believe in, in mental health care. So there was a time, maybe about a year ago, that I consulted with a therapist to just say, I just want to make sure that I don't feel traumatized. I want to figure out how to disconnect fully so I don't feel exactly what you're describing. And so we had a couple of sessions. This was in preparation for in retirement. In preparation for my departure, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to be, uh, now what do I do with my life? Now, you know, what happens when people don't recognize me? Or I fully understand that it's kind of an out of sight, out of mind kind of thing. And I'm okay with that. I am, I'm ready for this next phase of my life. Oh, that's fascinating, though. You did like a an inventory with a therapist to say, let's check some boxes and yes. see. Huh. Uh, name someone in your career you're grateful for and why. 
Well, that's a tough question. I'm grateful for a whole lot of people, and it depends on which phase in my life. How I'm, about when you first started in Denver on TV? Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, my husband. That might sound crazy, but my first day on the job, I met my husband there at Channel 7. He was a news photographer, and he was the first person I was assigned to to follow around. He and Harry Smith and Carlos Carlos Lucero. Harry Smith became the host of the CBS CBS Morning morning Show, and now he's on NBC News. Yes. And he and his wife, Andrea Joyce, worked at Channel 7 when I started there. And the four of us used to to double date, so it was really fun. (laughs) We are still friends with them. But honestly, I was 24 years old when I started at Channel 7, not very experienced. And I walked into a newsroom where there were primarily men who felt like they were the news gods and I didn't fit into the, the circle. So I had to learn very quickly about thick skin and trying to toughen up. And my husband, as a news photographer, he and I frequently worked together, and he would help me along with some of my stories as well. I had to learn very quickly how to just how to manage in that newsroom. Oh, now I'm curious. (laughs) If you were to assign a percentage to his help, how much of it was because he, like, fancied you? And how how much of it was because he's a good guy who wanted to make sure that you had space in that newsroom? That is very funny. Um, I, you know, I think it was all of those things. I think that when you work in a newsroom, there are, most people want to do good work, period. And it reflected on him as well, whatever story I, I had worked on that uh. day. It reflected in his photography and in the, the total package of what we put on the air. So... I think all of the above. I'm not going to give him percentages. <laughs> it was just he was he was just great about and and others were too. I don't want to just say it was only Mike, but but he really he was he was a huge help. Okay, finally, uh, maybe speak to young people. Is a television news career a good idea now? Oh, that's a loaded question because I think that the business has changed a lot over the years, and there is nothing glamorous about it, honestly. You have to love journalism to work in TV news because the demands are great. The hours are lousy. Um, The notion that you might even get a photographer in many television stations is a quaint aspect of another time. That's exactly right. Although I still will have people ask me to this day, who does your hair? Who does your makeup? I do. I do all of that. And sometimes it's with about two minutes to spare because I've been hammering away on my computer trying to get ready for a newscast and I look at the clock and I go oh my gosh I got to get downstairs right now to the set and I will you know very quickly put a little powder on my face so there's nothing glamorous about it mm-hmm. and um, whatever people have watched over the years about how it how it comes together it sometimes is yeah super glued together at the last minute I think what you're saying is there was a time in television news where if you were more in it for the maybe the glamour and the exposure and I don't know that kind of quintessential Ron Burgundy you know local anchor um, that time has passed (laughs) well and not only that honestly the people who sit down and watch TV news right now are probably 40 50 on up Mm -hmm. because if you think about who you know who has the younger generation 
Yes. Yeah. No one has that habit any longer. The younger generation is looking for everything on their phones. Truthfully, if I am recognized anymore, it's generally someone my age and older, right? You learn that you have to have all of the tools available to you with social media and your phone, as you say, and shooting a story or hitting any platform that you can to be able to get your message out. And it's not so much about name recognition anymore, even though some people will will focus on that, but it's more about getting the information out there on whatever platform you can you can get it out there. Reach people at mm-hmm. yeah. Does that make you think you're leaving just in time? Yes. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us, Anne. My pleasure. Thank you. Newswoman Andrew Hio has just retired from Denver 7 after a distinguished career. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with an experiment to reduce homelessness in Grand Junction. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado is remembering the five people who were killed at Club Q a year ago. Dozens more survived that night and have been trying to figure out life in the aftermath. It took a lot of soul-searching to see if I wanted to go back into a bar environment. It's definitely been weirdly healing to go to work in a bar. Hear some of their individual stories on Colorado In-Depth, wherever you get podcasts. In Grand Junction, Whitman Park has been a haven for people experiencing homelessness. And so it was a surprise when the city fenced it off in September. But out of that controversial decision comes a solution. Our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess, has covered this since the park was shut down. Hi, Tom. Hi, Ryan. What's the potential solution and how might it help? So they're calling it a resource center. Some folks are calling it a resource pavilion. But the idea is to fill in some of the gaps created by the Whitman Park closure. So a community gathering spot, a place where resource providers can find residents in the unhoused community and get them connected with services. It's going to be really low barrier for entry. Mm. It'll be a day shelter. It'll have things like showers, bathrooms, hand washing stations, laundry. And it's going to be able to be heated and cooled, so it's getting cold here in Grand Junction. They'll be able to keep it warm for the winter, and come July, when we're getting those triple-digit days, there'll be air conditioning for the folks who gather there during the day. Am I picturing, like, a bricks-and-mortar building, or, like, kind of something akin to the classrooms that I used to be in in, in school that were modular? More plexiglass. It's going to be temporary. It's going to be here for a couple of years as they kind of look at what the community needs long-term. Fairly solid, but still movable. Huh. Well, how did they settle on this approach? Post-Whitman Park closure, there was actually a lot of hard feelings between nonprofits, organizers, and city officials. The city kind of took it on the chin for a couple of weeks as they heard feedback during listening sessions, city council meetings. A lot of folks were mad There wasn't more notice given even to resource providers and that there wasn't a plan for where these residents were going to go. And at the same time, an unhoused needs assessment came out. What does this community need? The organizers started talking with the city and they kind of figured out how they can thread this needle 
get some of the resources Whitman Park had without some of the safety concerns and other factors that led to the park's closure. Which makes me wonder, did closing the park, again, a controversial decision, not notifying parties about it, but it might it have helped in this case? It's interesting. That was actually a justification that some at the city started saying a few weeks afterwards, city manager Greg Caton said the time had just come to close the park and it sort of needed to force some of these conversations on what to do next. And organizers were skeptical of that at the time, but at least one organizer I spoke to said, yeah, closing the park might actually have been the galvanizing incident to get this done. Here's Stephanie Avaskinas. She runs a group called Grand Junction Mutual Aid Partners. What I think is really great is that we just start out with centering the voices of people experiencing homelessness. And what they've told us is they want accessibility to basic needs that include restroom facilities, hand-washing stations, showers, laundry, that they want a place where they don't feel stigmatized, where they can just be and have some stability. She thinks the city is getting behind not just what the data is telling them, but what this community and what organizers are telling them. And the city put up about nine hundred grand to make it happen. Oh, almost a million dollars. Now, this won't just be a place to wash your hands or get warm, but to connect people with all sorts of resources. Like what? County health resources, the types of things that Mesa County Public Health can provide. Homeward Bound is one of the organizations that's going to be running it. They do a ton in the housing arena. United Way is going to be there. But even like little day-to-day things, food distribution, community meals. Stephania wants to get the Workforce Center involved to start connecting job stuff. GED services through the library are being talked about. And resources for pets. A lot of these residents have pets. So they're sort of taking an all-of-the-above approach on this. And folks are kind of excited to have that because that was a big factor in Whitman Park is it was centrally located. Mm -hmm. You could find these residents and get them connected to stuff. Yeah, you're just a few blocks from Whitman Park as we speak. Is it still closed, Tom? It is. It's available for special events. I think the city had a Halloween event there, but the barricades are still up. A lot of the residents that were using it sort of went elsewhere. They've gone to some other parks, some downtown areas. And the Resource Center is actually going to be about two blocks west of Whitman Park. So, again, it will kind of be in the same spot, which organizers are hoping will help play into the success of it. Are the people you've spoken with optimistic, then, about this plan? They are, for the most part. Mayor Anna Stout likes the direction the city's taking. There's some long-term housing projects that are breaking ground or under construction. This will fill in that short-term day shelter gap that a lot of organizers thought was missing. And this is something of a trial period. It's going to run for a couple of years. Stephanie Avaskinez says she's been meeting with as many folks as possible to solicit input. And she thinks if there's enough collaboration, this thing might have a pretty good chance of helping people. I really feel like it's limitless as long as everybody gives it a chance, including service providers that perhaps are a little leery about what is this going to be. My hope is that as many providers that their work intersects with people experiencing homelessness will want to give this a try. Kind of see if it's a fit. If it's not a fit, it's not a fit. But I just say, just give it a try because I think it's going to take all of us for this to be successful. The center opens middle of December and we'll have to see then how it all lands.
It's fascinating, Tom, because it does make me think of the micro-communities that Denver is trying out as a solution to homelessness. I mean, this idea of something on the smaller scale and kind of nimble, you know? Yeah, and organizers that you talk to point to that community angle a lot that you do need to recognize the small gathering spots where these groups can meet, interact, and get some of those basic necessities and then kind of build towards those long-term things. So laundry facilities, hand-washing stations, things that that unhoused needs assessment said were important, as well as stepping stones to some of these longer-term issues that are a part of the overall tapestry. A bridge to them. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you. Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess on a new effort to reduce homelessness in Grand Junction. Still to come, why a surge in respiratory illness in dogs shouldn't make you panic for your pooch. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Wonders set out to answer some questions about the Western Slope. Or is it the West Slope? And where exactly is it? Lots of listeners shared their thoughts about Western Colorado's boundaries and the right way to refer to it. It's the best slope. Listen to what we found on Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. A contagious respiratory illness is going around in dogs. Many news stories have dubbed this a mystery. Is it, though? And how worried should dog owners be? CPR's Sarah Buris has some answers. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Ryan. What is the right level of concern? I talked to three different veterinarians, and they all said the same thing. Don't panic, but be cautious. It's true that more dogs are getting sick with respiratory illnesses, plural, that are lasting longer than usual, and a small number of dogs develop pneumonia, which can be difficult to treat, and an even smaller number of dogs have died. Dr. Amanda Cavanaugh is an assistant professor at Colorado State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. The term mystery illness, I think, is then tossed out there, but I don't know that that's what we're dealing with. Dr. Cavanaugh told me that typically when there is an outbreak, veterinarians will see a cluster of sick dogs in one area that all test positive for the same virus or bacteria. But that's not what's happening right now. Ah, thus the plural in terms of illnesses. So what is happening, Sarah? The bugs that typically cause respiratory illnesses in dogs are called kennel cough, which really is just an umbrella term for infections in dogs' airways. Canine coronavirus, adenovirus, distemper, parainfluenza, to name a few. What's happening right now is veterinarians are testing for these known viruses in dogs using PCR tests. Before you ask. Oh, yeah. PC- I know that term. Yes, we know it. Those are the same type of nasal or throat swabs that we humans use to test for COVID-19. For dogs, those tests are coming back inconclusive, meaning there isn't one virus showing up more than another. Part of that is these PCR tests are most accurate within 72 hours of the onset of a dog's first symptoms. But people aren't meeting that window. Here's what Colorado State veterinarian Dr. Maggie Baldwin told me. There has not been any conclusive testing to indicate what might be causing this increased prevalence in in disease. So there's not one agent that we're picking up that's 
specific. That doesn't necessarily mean that what we're seeing is a new or novel virus, as there's a lot of different causes for canine respiratory infections. But it just means that we might not be testing enough or we might not be testing at the right time in the course of disease to pick that up. Typically, for viral respiratory infections, you really have to test early in in the course of disease in order to actually catch the virus itself on diagnostic testing. Dr. Baldwin said she doesn't think that veterinarians researching this increase in sick dogs are going to find a novel virus. Ah, okay. There's something comforting about that. It's At least it's something we know. Or maybe. What about these viruses that are turning into pneumonia, though, Sarah? Dr. Baldwin says cases where dogs had developed pneumonia seem to be caused by a secondary bacterial infection. But that still doesn't give us any insight into the initial virus or viruses. Okay. And I imagine in dogs, just as in people, pneumonia can strike you if you are weaker with other conditions. What are some of the treatments for sick dogs? If you think your dog is ill, it has a cough, a runny nose, or eyes, it's being lethargic, you should call your vet immediately. That will ensure your dog can get tested in time, and so the vet has a better idea of what they're treating. Depending on whether the dog is infected with a virus or a bacteria, treatment could include antibiotics or other types of supportive care. In some cases, pneumonia has developed and progressed very quickly, like in one or two days. Uh So it's really important that you get your dog to the vet if they're symptomatic. What are some ways dog owners can keep their pets healthy? First big thing, make sure your dog is up to date on all vaccines. That includes the normal group of shots like distemper, adenovirus, parainfluenza that your veterinary gives your dog every one or three years. Mm. Then have your veterinarian also give your dog intranasal bordetella and canine influenza. Again, Dr. Kavanaugh. Those two vaccines, if you go to your veterinarian, are sometimes optional vaccines and recommended if your dog is going into grooming or is going into boarding. But at this point, I recommend that every dog get those two vaccines. That's something all of the veterinarians I spoke to recommended. They also said that sometimes it takes up to two weeks for dogs to develop immunity. So it's best to keep dogs away from dogs they don't live with until that immunity has developed. I'll say that after reporting this story, I called my vet and made an appointment to get my dog, Nellie, vaccinated against canine influenza. She already had Bordetella. Well, say more about dogs cavorting with other dogs right now. Sure. Given the rates of respiratory illness we're seeing, it's a good idea to keep your dog from mingling with others. Avoiding dog parks, boarding facilities, groomers, pet stores, even resisting the urge to let dogs say hi when they're out for a walk. Hmm. What if someone doesn't have a choice and needs to board their dog or use doggy daycare? It's totally understandable. With the holidays, I get it. Again, make sure your dog is fully vaccinated. I talked to Dr. Celine St. Bernard, Regional Medical Director of VCA Animal Hospitals. Most boarding and doggy daycare facilities will require vaccination, but I would make sure that even if they aren't requiring specific vaccines, that if you're putting your dog in one of those places because you need to travel or whatever's going on, that you make sure they are vaccinated. And then just making sure it's a high-quality facility and that they do the job of cleaning and disinfection you have your contact information for them to call you or reach out to you if there's an issue um, and that they know who your veterinarian is in case there's any kind of a problem. Sarah, it sounds like there are a lot of unknowns about this wave of respiratory illnesses, likely plural, in dogs. 
But there are a lot of things dog owners can do to keep their pets safe. It's the message I'm taking away. Exactly. I would say that it's a time to be cautious, but again, not to panic. As we heard from Dr. Baldwin, it's unlikely that this is a novel virus. But even if it is something that is more contagious or more difficult to treat, dog owners, and I'm counting myself in that group, have a lot of tools to keep their furry pals safe. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR News Editor Sarah Buris on protecting your dog's respiratory health. Now, a writer who owns a bookstore, Arvin Ramgulam, and his wife Danica are the proprietors of Townie Books in Crested Butte. It is the literary nucleus of that resort community. And even as Ramgulam slings books, he's writing one, a novel that pushes back against white masculine tropes in Western fiction. The bookstore is in a charming clabbered home on Elk Avenue and shares a shingle with a coffee shop. Arvin, thanks for having us in the shop. Thank you for being here. You keep a journal of memorable moments customers have had in your store. Can we take a look at that together? Absolutely. It goes back to 2017 when I got the idea to even start doing this. You know, like if someone had a bad experience in the store and they went to the internet and they left a bad review. And so... This is the Yelp antidote. Yes, absolutely. Uh, A little boy, his family, the last group of the day, stopped as his family was leaving and wished me a nice day while waving. He didn't have to do that. It was cute and thoughtful for a little kid. Oh, I see. So this is actually written by the staff as they observe things. It's not that the customers are writing it. Yes, it's us noting things that they either said or did as we've interacted with people during the day. And we have a lot of that in the store. That's the magic of the bookstore, really. Okay, that was from March of 2017. Let's fast forward a bit. Let's see. Mom thanked me for having a wide variety of diverse representation in our children's section. Uh, I love books. Oh man, I love books. This is so me. I love books. I love bookstores. That was something an exuberant customer must have proclaimed. I understand you've also had some like makeshift slogans over the years. Yeah, we have had some makeshift slogans. What's on our t-shirt is drink coffee, read books, fight evil, but also, you know, funny things like come for the bathroom, stay for the books. Please don't take the books in the bathroom as we learned from that Seinfeld episode, though. (laughs) Yes, please don't do that. Uh, Another one is, this is quite cold here, obviously in the wintertime. Come to the bookstore. It's warmer than your house. (laughs) Do you feel a sense of responsibility curating the shelves of a bookstore? I mean, that one comment about having books for young people that are diverse and reflect reality. Absolutely. I think people assume that the West and places like this, like Crested Butte, are very homogeneous and very straight and white and actually they're fairly diverse and there are groups of people here who have been here for a long time and my job i think is not only to just sell books but also have a conversation here about who lives here and how can i convey that to not only customers but in my own work i explore that because i live here and i am working through towards an answer for where are you from 
And to me, I think about, well, where am I from? I'm from here. I've lived here for 20 years now. This is my home. I have a business. I have young children. And so when I look at my kids and I, I look at myself, I, I think, well, certainly we belong here. And I'm not trying to justify our existence. I'm just trying to underline that there is diversity in the West and I'm a part of it. Now, people listening to this interview don't know that you are not white. <laughs> that, and so I suppose we should fill them in on why you might face the question, where are you from? Yes, I was uh, born in Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Grew up in Miami, Florida, but now have lived here in Crested Butte for 20 years and been a part of this community in so many different ways. And that question strangely comes up, you know, from people checking out. And I understand there's a curiosity about that. But I think we're living in 2023 and people are starting to come to understand that that maybe is not exactly a very polite way to start a conversation with someone. Your latest project is a novel called A New West, and it includes nods to classic Western themes. I'm thinking of the protagonist relocating to the Southwest, partly because his father has damp lungs, very Doc Holliday. Uh, the characters are Indo-Caribbean. The fights in this book are over public lands. I want you to read this excerpt from the draft because a character is asked where they're from. He went through the myriad of possibilities he contained, a Trinidadian, an American, an East Coaster, a father, a Bostonian, an engineer, a widow, a son, an almost divorcee, a closet nerd, a Nirvana fan, an immigrant, a hiker, a biker, a reluctant environmentalist, a cyber stalker. Which answer would suffice for this woman who moments before stood at the podium and advocated for a billion-dollar company opening a mine on the outskirts of town near the headwaters of the town's water supply. Nirvana fan, I love that. <laughs> it does make me think that we contain multitudes. And I do wonder then, when you are asked where you are from, is it something you dignify with an answer? And is it an answer you've come to? It depends. It depends on who I'm talking to. Uh, you have to do some reading of the person themselves. Who is asking me? Why they're asking me? Are they asking me because they want to tell me something, which is something I've encountered from their own family, from their own experiences? Have they been to India? And they want to know if I'm someone who is also from India. I am not. My heritage is, but I don't have a connection there that I can share with them. Or are they just being callous and not thoughtful? We're sitting on a couch in your lovely bookstore, which you own with your wife, and every square inch has a book, or a bookmark, or a puzzle, or a greeting card, or a t-shirt. Is it maybe a mixed bag to be a writer who is surrounded by books? That is to say, I can imagine them being inspiration, but I can also imagine them being, I don't know, like... Reminders, you're not writing enough, write more. You're not successful enough. This is how I would interpret this environment. I'm very curious how you do. It is unnerving sometimes to walk into the store if I haven't written for a couple of days. And I think to myself, wow, I need to step on the gas and get going. There's also a, a real um, 
it inspires me, but it, it, there's also anxiety that comes from being in the bookstore. Um, there's wonderful people that I know personally, and I see their books, and I, I, I love that. And I can see myself on the other side of this book world. And there's also, I mean, frankly, there's some books that I'm like, how did that even get published? <laughs> like, you know, we have books in the store that we dearly love, and there's some that we sell because they're selling in the world. And so we, me personally, I am constantly thinking about, like, how books end up on bookshelves. I can imagine doing this because it's self-comparison. You're thinking, how did that get published? But I'm struggling with such and such a project. Yeah, it, that also plays into the inspiration of if this person pulled it off, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think I can do it too. You know, owning a bookstore strikes me as one of those jobs that it would be very easy to romanticize, like maybe owning a bed and breakfast. But that people are not as aware of the slog and the difficulty. You've shared some of the joy. Get real with me on what is vexing about owning an independent bookstore in an age of Amazon and Alibris and tablets. It's frustrating because I'm small. I'm very small. I can't carry every single thing. We cannot control anything outside of the walls of our store. We can have the books that we're the most passionate about, that we love, that we can sell and make a case for that you wouldn't encounter on Amazon or anywhere else because we've put in the time and the work to put it on our tables and shelves. You're a curator. Exactly. That's what we offer. We can't give you the deepest discount possible, but we can sell you a book that you might love for the rest of your life. Is that vexing? Is that wonderful? What's hard about this? It's hard to overcome the price point. I need to sell something to, so I can pay my bills and feed my family and, and do that. And I don't think it's as apparent that that is sort of what we're doing here. Like we're all, we're very passionate about what we do, but we also have lives and we need to like pay for things and save for college for our kids and pay for braces and, and do that stuff. And this is how we do it. This is how we've chosen to live our life. It's difficult in some ways, but all jobs are difficult. I so appreciate you saying this because there's this idea that like you always have to love what you do, which I think is really a toxic idea. But, you know, I, there are times, of course, I love what I do, but I also realize I would rather be hating aspects of this than hating aspects of anything else. <laughs> and hate's a strong word, but does that resonate with you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'll take these problems. I'd like to go back to your novel, A New West, still in the works. It includes an Aldo Leopold quote. To those devoid of imagination, a blank spot on the map is a useless waste. To others, the most valuable part. Does that relate to your experience coming to Crested Butte from South Florida? Because this isn't an empty spot on the map, but we're not far from one of the most remote spots in the lower 48, Lake City. It's just around the bend from here. I mean, compared to South Florida... This is a very different experience. Yes. It's a good way to, to remind myself of how someone in the East might think about the West. And that people, I speak for myself, didn't really know what was here. I was sort of dragged here a little bit against my will by friends who 
you know, thought that I needed to change. And they came here. They brought me here, and, and, and it turned out to be a wonderful experience for me in my life. And, and to me, it was a blank spot on the map. And I didn't know what was here. And coming here and finding it and finding value and community and people and the place, and that there is something here substantial, just not in what I might have thought 20 years ago when I first got here. What do you see now that you didn't see then? The wilderness, the outdoors. Growing up, I had no background in the outdoors or recreation or anything like that. I grew up in Miami Beach, and it was just the beach and the city. And that was it really for me. A lot of thongs. <laughs> the thong song was my send-off from the city. <laughs> it, was the, the, it was the number one song, I think, on the radio when I left South Florida. <laughs> Now we have to play it. Damn you. <laughs> no, I'm so sorry, Ryan. Arvin, lovely to meet you. Thanks so much for spending time with us in this store. Thank you so much for making the trip to Crested Butte and being here. And it's really wonderful to have you here. Big hug, Ryan. Author Arvin Ramgulam co-owns Townie Books and the attached Rumors Coffee and Tea House. We spoke in Crested Butte back in June during the Mountain Words Literary Festival. I asked him to recommend five books about the American West, and we've posted his picks at CPR.org. Come on. Come on. Come on. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these characters. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, you're with CPR News and KRCC.